Hey, I'm Lee from Dublin, Ireland. I'm Nick, Showtime Bellotta from Rhode Island. I'm Blake from Oakland, California. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Eat, Pray, Love made Elizabeth Gilbert famous. Way, way more famous than she ever expected. It was a memoir about personal transformation and romance and globetrotting and spirituality. Basically, book buyer catnip. Her new book's a novel, and the subject matter is a little different. It's about a woman in the 19th century who, uh, well, basically she studies moss. Is there any successful plant fiction? It's not a genre. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Actually, I'll tell you. My favorite story about this is that when I was doing research on this book, which I did for three years, I did a lot of traveling to the places that the book takes us. So my my dog had to stay with his dog sitter a lot while I was doing all this traveling. And my dog sitter's 13-year-old son, who's very much a boy, who is on the wrestling team and the football team, said to his mom, why, why do we have Rocky all the time? And she said, well, Liz is writing a book and she has to travel. And Sean said, what's it about? And... And Karen said, well, um, I don't know a lot about it, but from what she told me, it seems to be about a 19th century spinster who spends her life studying moss. (laughs) There's this long silence. And then Sean goes, Mom, do you think Liz will be sad if I don't read her book? (laughs) Really, though, it's a pretty great story. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Elizabeth Gilbert. Her new novel traces the life of a woman living in the 19th century as a botanist, but it basically skips her entire young adulthood. Alma to travel alone as a postmenopausal woman in her 50s on a ship full of sailors just felt like safer to me than to have her there at 25. I'll ask Elizabeth about what the reaction to Eat, Pray, Love has meant to her, both the good and the not-so-good. Then I'll talk to Gillian Jacobs. She plays Britta on NBC's Community. She'll talk about her time at Juilliard. In theater school, they do this thing, breaking you down to build you up. I felt like they kind of forgot to build me back up and kind of left me a pile of mush. Plus, Portlandia's Fred Armisen talks about the album he wishes he'd made. Our film critic buddies at The Dissolve pick out a couple of films you'll want to watch ASAP, and I'll tell you why a perfect balance between the real and unreal makes one particular video game absolutely enthralling. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You may already know some of Elizabeth Gilbert's life story. Here it goes anyway. About 10 years ago, she was 30-ish. She was a successful fiction writer, biographer, and magazine writer. She'd been nominated for a National Book Award. She'd received a Pushcart Prize. She was also going through a divorce, which takes us to the part that you may already know, the eat, pray, love part. She wrote a book proposal. She'd find herself through a year of travel, indulging in food in Italy, praying in India, and then trying to find balance in Bali. If you didn't read Eat, Pray, Love, seven people you know did. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than three years. I counted the number of weeks. Long story short, the whole thing that she went through uh, worked pretty well anyway, and her next book, Committed, was about her marriage to a man that she met along the way. So all of that having been said, the natural next move was to spend four years writing a grand 19th century novel. 
It's called The Signature of All Things, and it follows a homely spinster named Alma Whitaker through a lifetime of studying moss. But somehow, despite that, it's kind of a thrilling adventure story. <laughs> I promise. Uh, Liz Gilbert, it's great to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Jesse. I'm so happy to be here. Tell me about what you, what is your personal relationship with science? Um, respectful distance <laughs> <laughs> that I your, keep from it. Your, da- your dad was a scientist, right? Uh, well, or my dad's an engineer. An engineer. Um, um, my sister has a scientific mind. I think science is nice and important. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I admire it. It brings good things to our lives, better living through science. Um, I am not a person of a scientific mind. Um, so it was a really interesting challenge to write a novel about a woman who is completely defined by her empirical scientific mind uh, because I don't lean that way personally. So if you're going to write a book then about an independent woman of the late 18th, early 19th century, why not write it about a woman who, you know, wrote poetry or a woman who painted or made home crafts, you know, needlepoints, like really elaborate 19th century <laughs> needlepoints as they did? I think that that me pitching the big epic needlepoint novel is probably <laughs> an, an even more disastrous idea than the big moss studying novel. Um, well, I wanted to write about plants. So the whole the whole idea for this book came because I've recently become a very passionate gardener. And I knew that whatever project I was going to do next was going to have to be about plants or it wouldn't hold my own attention. But the big gardening epic novel is almost as difficult to imagine as the big needlepoint epic. So I I had to reach back in time to try to find this moment in history where the plant world was action adventure and, and life and death excitement. And that was that moment between the end of the Age of Enlightenment and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's sort of a crossover point, right? I mean, yeah. at, at, the, at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, you have, you know, the real scientific method and enough, you know, ability to print on a mass scale to share the knowledge learned from the real scientific method. Yeah. Um, but you still don't have so much information learned that you have to specialize. Right. I think it was officially the last moment in history where you could there could be a person who knew everything. Like Franklin knew basically everything that there was to be known in the world um, during his life. He would whatever there was that was known information, he had it in his head. Um, and they also say that Origin of Species is the last major scientific work that a regular human being can read. After that, we just got left behind in the dust. It just got too, it's too molecular now um, and too specific. But it was the age of the great ambitious amateur. And those people had amazing lives. And they and, and also the science itself is interesting because it's action adventure science. It's not in the laboratory. It's out in the field. You know, it's sort of athletic science in a way. So tell me about where women fit into that world because obviously it was not a time of full equality for women. Really? (laughs) They were almost there, Jesse. Yeah. They were almost there. I mean, by the 1850s, Eyes on the prize. Yeah. If my understanding of women's history is correct, um, by 1850 they had full, yeah, Uh equal work, pay for equal work. Um, So... Well, here's the thing. I'll tell you the truth. I initially set out with the intention of writing a novel about a woman of towering intellect and great gifts who was a tremendous scientist whose work was not received because she was a woman. And then as I went deeper and deeper into research about 18th and 19th century female botanists, I realized that that storyline would be so insulting to them and such a 
such disregard um, for their contributions. They, there were some really amazing female botanists, and botany was the only science that women were at least a little bit welcomed into because plants, flowers, women, there's sort of a natural correlation there, and women snuck into botany through the garden gate, and then once they were in there, they made... They made really wonderful advances. And, you know, some of them went to Madagascar and some of them became great illustrators and some of them have galleries that Kew Gardens named after them and some of them were taxonomy fiends. And, you know, they had all sorts of skills and they published. And um, there was a woman named Mrs. Mary Treat in my home state of New Jersey who corresponded with Darwin for most of her life about carnivorous swamp plants. And you read their letters and he's not patronizing her and she's not hero-worshipping him. It's peer-to-peer scientific discussion. And so I just thought... It would be defamation of the memory of those women to write a story about a woman who's not listened to. Um, it doesn't mean that she gets to be the president of the Royal Society of Fellows or run Harvard University or have a great name that the great men had, but she certainly would have a voice in the scientific world. It's a very specific kind of woman who gets to have uh, a voice in the scientific world. And so you yeah. kind of have to set up your protagonist, Alma Whitaker, uh, to to be in this band of people. I mean, you mentioned... Botany is one of the few fields of science because it has a vaguely domestic, you know, context. Um, but there's a there's also other sort of prerequisites that have to be checked off. Yeah, I mean, from my this is a big generalization, but it kind of works. Um, it, it appeared to me from my study that if you want to be a successful, and I'll put that in air quotes, <laughs> relatively 18th or 19th century female botanist, you're going to need to be an heiress. You're going to need to have a either a husband, a father, or a brother who is a powerful man of science as an entree into that world. And it's probably better that you be either a spinster or childless. And so out of that model, I created Alma Whitaker, which is why I spend the first 50 pages of the book explaining how her father came to be the richest man in the new world, because it was important that he be. Otherwise, um, you know, money's almost like a third gender. You know, it, it can almost overcome a lot of gender disparity. And so she needed to be very, very moneyed in order to have the, the right to have the mind that she was able to develop. Why did you make her uh, one of her defining traits, her homeliness? Because I wanted to write about a carnal and earthy and very sexual woman. And as a female reader, it irritates me forever in both 19th century and contemporary literature that when a woman is lusty, it's telegraphed in her appearance. She always looks like Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> you know, um, Hedda Gabler looks like Jessica Rabbit, and Anna Karenina looks like Jessica Rabbit. Like, it's it's all about their, there's something in them. They have, like, flashing eyes, and they've got wild auburn hair, and there's, like, a, a dangerous high color to their cheeks, and they've got heaving breasts, even now. And and I just know that that's not the reality. Hold, hold on, by the way. i got to go take a quick break. <laughs> Back to Moss. <laughs> so I wanted to challenge that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Elizabeth Gilbert. You might know her 2006 memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. Her new novel is called The Signature of All Things. Its protagonist, Alma Whitaker, dedicates her life to the study of Moss. The book has these sort of, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a very, as I said, vast novel, and it has sort of little epics within it. One of them is, uh, as you said, 50 pages of setting up how uh, the protagonist's father became rich, which is a sort of cool seafaring adventure. <laughs> um, and, and then there is, uh, there's childhood. And then there's, you know, you, you pick up at 45, 50-ish. Yeah, we kind of skip 
her 20s. Yeah, I, there's this long adulthood, which is um, extremely homebound, where she is simply taking care of her father and studying and I, and taking care of her father's business to some extent um, and being rich. Um, <laughs> that takes a lot of time. Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> genuine, genuine. Uh, Managing know. the estate. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I wonder why you decided to have her adventure at 50 rather than 30. Because it was more plausible to me. Um, and, and, and it was more plausible to me based on a lot of research I did of the sort of great seafaring Victorian women. They tended to do it later in life. Um, and, and there were reasons for that, maybe because they were widowed by that point, maybe because they didn't have small children to take care of, maybe because their wealth finally came in. I think also there is a safety for a woman who's past the age of apparent desire, where the same thing that, that women always object to, which is that when they get older, they become invisible, can also be a superpower. And Alma to travel alone as a postmenopausal woman in her 50s on a ship full of sailors just felt like safer to me than to have her there at 25. And also more more realistic, she's 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 in the safety of a crone, you know, like where she's sort of not seen, and then therefore she can she can travel freely. And I had lots of examples of women who had done that, and I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Another really interesting thing on the subject of Alma Whitaker's adventures as a fifty year old was the specific idea of a woman traveling alone, which obviously was a big part of Eat Pray Love. Um, and I, I, I understand, I read somewhere that the first big trip that you took was to the communist <laughs> Russia at the time, <laughs> communist Russia as a, as a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's funny cause people ask me a lot, like, isn't it dangerous to travel? I've traveled alone so much, um, and, and probably have done. So, I mean, now in my dotage, in my mid-40s, I would look back at things I did in my 20s and think I ought probably not to have done that. Um, but I had more curiosity than I had fear. And I also learned that there are also advantages to being a woman traveling alone, the primary one being nobody is afraid of you. Does that make sense? Like, I always – there's stories that I've gotten as to a woman. To be fair, nobody's afraid of me. <laughs> oh, no. You know, no, I disagree. I think that a man alone – Walking into your village at ten o'clock at night is a is a in, you know a stranger a strange man coming through town is a dangerous person. I'm never a dangerous person, so I'm vulnerable because I'm a woman. But I also have a superpower, which is that no one fears me, which means that I can go into people's homes and I can hold their babies and they'll tell me stories and they'll look out for me and. I get things that I feel like a man couldn't get. I always felt like that as a journalist. I, like I, I remember doing a story about the buckle bunnies, the groupies of the professional rodeo circuit, and going into these cowboy bars in Texas on one hand feeling a little threatened to go in and on the other hand feeling if I were my equivalent as a man, if I were a guy from New York City who's walking into a cowboy bar in the middle of central Texas after a rodeo and wanting to t interview the rodeo cowboys, I think I would end up being beaten up, you know, um, it would be so much more challenging to them than as a woman to walk up. So I just felt like it, it's given me access and entree into the world that it has so far outweighed the risks. What about to not 
physical part because I, I'll tell you, I I think if I use this example of this trip trip I took to Laos one time, you know, Laos is a, especially the not too touristy parts is an incredibly safe country, um, and my biggest emotional crisis was being by myself, which is any solo traveler's concern, but. I think that women are much more encouraged to define themselves by their relationships than are men. Yeah. You know, men are expected to go forth into the world and bring back, you know, hides or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, to go on the walkabout, you yeah. know, to go on the hero's journey, right? It's even mythically the case yeah. that a young man is supposed to leave his village and, and um, well, you know, Odysseus gets to go on the Odyssey Penelope stays home and has that big weaving scene again and again and again right. and again, <laughs> like big action adventure, weave and unweave, weave and unweave. You know, so there isn't even there isn't really that we don't really have that model. Whereas a lot of women's stories are about did or did not they find a good husband? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I I wrote a little screed about this on my Facebook page the other day because I I have a, a lot of women on that page and I and I said I think that one of the most important things that you need to learn as a woman is how to be lonely and um and travel can help you learn that and and how to just know what that feels like and know that it doesn't kill you and especially those evening hours you know traveling during the day by yourself you can go to all the museums and you can eat at the cafes and you sort of feel like glamorous and frenchy you know and then there's that moment where dinner's done and it's 6:30 and you, and you've got five empty hours and you don't know anybody in that city and you're all by yourself like I think it's really vital that especially young women learn how to just sit through that and and not immediately try to find somebody to attach themselves to to get rid of that terrible feeling of loneliness because then if you don't learn how to do that you're constantly picking somebody to be with just so that you don't have to endure your own company and that can lead you to bad unions <laughs> so that you you know if you know how to be lonely then you can decide whether you really want to be with somebody or if it's, if it's better to just be lonely. And I think that's something that is really hard for young women to learn. Let's say you're a novelist and you've got to write about 19th century sex. Who do you ask for help? Elizabeth Gilbert found an answer. She'll tell us after the break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. My name is Graham Clark. My name is Dave Shumka. I'm the other guy who hosts Stop Podcasting Yourself. And I'm the other guy that hosts Stop Podcasting Yourself. We are from Canada, so we don't know many of your ways. But what we do know is quality podcasting. And whale blubber. Yeah. There's 50 different words for podcast in our language. We would say all 50 of them, but why don't you just listen to our show and you'll get you'll get the gist of what we're about. We bring a guest on, we talk about their lives, we talk about our lives, we talk about things they've overheard. It's a great time. And you know what? You're not going to regret it. Stop podcasting yourself. Available from MaximumFun.org or on iTunes. Brr. That's what we say in Canada when we're cold. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Elizabeth Gilbert wrote the best-selling memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. But that came after years of toiling in the writerly trenches. Her short stories won her a pushcart prize. Her nonfiction got her nominated for a National Book Award. We're talking about her world before she was a regular on Oprah. How did you think about what success was? Did you have an, an objective? I think my biggest fear in life in general is to be trapped. Um, I spent one summer working. My... You, you know what you should do? Can I recommend something? Yeah. 
Just write a monstrous career-defining book uh, when you're still a very young woman. Okay. It's my recommendation for your fear of being trapped. Um, That was my plan. I decided that was my long-term plan. You can't plan for that. But but I was really scared, and I think I still remain scared of being trapped in a boredom work, you know, of any kind. And, And I spent the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I came home my dad got me like the job that your dad gets you. At the, he was still working at the chemical plant as an engineer as his day job, and he got me a job working there in somebody's office. And I, it, it was so horrifying to me that I was like, every day, really, <laughs> for years, really. Like, and I just remember being so scared of that. Like that can't be what I do. And I'm happy to be a waitress. I'm happy to be a bartender. I'm happy to be a trail cook. I'm happy to be a babysitter. But I was so scared of. I'm really genuinely scared of having to have a job like that, that I think it really pushed me to make sure that I didn't. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I think when you wrote this book, when you wrote Eat, Pray, Love, you you hoped it would be successful, but I can't imagine that you were shooting for the kind of success that it had. I mean, yeah. you had written uh, three successful books, but like, you know, none of them was on the bestseller list for three. Maybe you hoped that it would be on the bestseller list for a little bit. For a week would have been great. So so I imagine the first, you know, 18 months of that is just like, uh, okay, uh, got to go to Chicago and be on Oprah. Uh, you know, uh, got a speaking engagement with the president. Like, okay, here we go, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but then when you had to engage with the idea of how do I move on with my life and you went through that thought process, which is a very rational thing to think, you know, I can't, there's no way I'm going to top this. That's a stupid goal. I don't want to live the rest of my life in a sort of negative definition. I'm not that. Right. You know, I think it was a puzzle and that's, that's the thing. It was almost like a, I felt like it was a plot puzzle. You know, I have the same moment sometimes when I'm writing fiction where I'm like, this is an interesting puzzle. How do you get this character off the dime here, you know? Um, and I kind of took a bit of an almost detached look at my life that way. Like, what would be the way to handle this that would be to not squander the blessing of it, to not be eaten by it, to not be cannibalized by it, to not hate it in the end, um, to be respectful of it? And it's tricky because I knew, I mean, this isn't paranoia. This was just a fact. I knew that whatever I did that came right after Eat, Pray, Love, it would be disappointing to people. You know, if people had adored Eat, Pray, Love, they would be disappointed because it wasn't Eat, Pray, Love. And if the many people who hated Eat, Pray, Love saw that I wrote another book, they would be disappointed that I still lived. (laughs) You know, like like there was really no way to please anybody. And, um, and, and it's hard enough to get up the energy to write a book, but to write a book where the foregone conclusion is already established that this will be a disappointment, it, it like took this kind of resolve. And the way that I got through it was, if I don't do this, if I don't break the spell of this thing as quickly as possible, then I will never write another book. And that's not going to be devastating for the world, but it would be devastating for me because I really love this work and it's the thread that has given me meaning and tied my life together forever. So if I stop, that's going to be very sad for me. So I have to push through this and put something out there and then let that thing draw the poison of all the opinions that had grown up over it. And I remember the day that Committed was published, I felt like I was 
gently lowering a puppy into a chum pool. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> here you go. Every, and then I just had this sense really where like, let's all just get this out. You know, like I know we, people have strong feelings about this book. Just get it out and let's just all move on so that I can continue to do work. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne and I'm talking with Elizabeth Gilbert. Her 2006 memoir was a little thing called Eat, Pray, Love. Maybe you heard of it. Her new novel follows a middle-aged woman who studies moss. It's exciting, though. I promise. A big part of the story of your protagonist is that because of the world that she lives in and because of the fact that she is a spinster, she... uh, doesn't have uh, sex relations with uh, men. I, I should have probably wrote that, written that down to make it public radio friendly in some way because it sounds worse that I said it in that halting way. Uh, but you know, she doesn't. She doesn't have sex because yeah. she's not married. Um, yeah. uh, uh, you know, through through her um, through her young adulthood. Yeah. She's not married and doesn't have sex, and that is a big deal. Yeah. Um, what was it like to imagine what it would be like to have that as your experience? Ooh, you know what? That was the hardest part of the book for me. I knew somehow from the beginning I knew that Alma was going to be this very carnal, lusty woman. That felt like a really important part of her identity. I also felt like I wanted to write the entire life of a woman, which includes sexuality and which is something that we don't see in 19th century literature except for very obliquely, um, you know, or, or in severe code. You know, the Brontes are super good at kind of putting a level of kink underneath a lot of the dialogue that's going on. And Henry James is good at that. Jane Austen is good at that. But they could only refer to what I, as a contemporary writer writing about the 19th century, could actually discuss. And I wanted to discuss it. And she's also an explorer. She's a scientist. She's a very curious person. She's a she's very connected to the earth and to nature. And I just thought there's no way she's leaving her own body unexplored. And I just know her too well. You know, she would she would check that out. Like, she checks out everything. Uh, she's empirical. She's an investigator. And so I knew that her sexual relief was going to be from herself to herself. And But when I got to the point in the novel where that begins, it was the first time that I got stopped in the book because I didn't know how to do it without humiliating her. And she had become so dear to me. I didn't want to disgrace her. Um, and I didn't want it to become sordid. Um, and I really didn't know how to do it. So I ended up taking out to lunch this woman who's a friend of mine who's a romance novelist writer, and she writes so much period sex. She has a contract that says that every one of her books has to have two and a half sex scenes, one on page 40, one on page 80, one on page 20, 120. What it constitutes a half sex scene? Masturbation or oral sex. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. And that is in the contract. <laughs> so she's done this a lot. And, and I took her out to lunch and said, I've never been, like, I don't know how to continue. If I take this piece of Alma away from her because I'm, I have a discomfort with it, then a lot of the plot to follow falls apart because her desire is an enormous part of the story. Um, and then other, you know, the whole foundation of the novel falls apart. But if I put it in, I'm afraid that I'm degrading her or disgracing her. And, and my friend Mary said, it's really simple. Liz. All you have to do is ask yourself what that character would actually do and then let her do it. And it's so, I felt embarrassed that after 20 years of a writing career, nobody had ever given me that really fundamental writing advice before. It's really good for a lot of scenarios in fiction. Did you look up a list of 
words for lady parts mm-hmm. and just go through them and see how they felt. Yes, <laughs> I did exactly that. And I had no shortage of choices because any good slang dictionary of the 19th century will give you a good page and a half of lady part slang, as will a contemporary slang dictionary. Can you give me some rejected choices before we build to the one that you sure. did end up choosing, which I, I've grown quite fond of? I like coin purse. <laughs> that one doesn't have the needed gravity, I think, for this context. I, I can see why you didn't. The fact pick that it. she was an heiress just gives <laughs> it a whole other level, too. Um, that was a nice one. Some of them were are so frankly obscene. I can't say them on radio, and I'm a little shocked. I mean, some of the ones. Well, that well we this could use, go. We could just put it on the podcast, and you could just say them. Well, I mean, one of the oldest words in the English language is cunt. I mean, that's like a good 13th century word um, from which we get the word cunning, which I think is a wonderful <laughs> thing to know. <laughs> um, and uh, and cunnilingus, you'll be surprised to hear. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a, that is like a deep old-fashioned word, like as old as fuck, which is another really old word. I mean, some of those words that just feel... I mean, and I use that word in the novel. There's a, there's a moment at which Henry, you know, in his dying throes, says to Alma goes back to his seafaring language and says, don't let any cunt or bastard in this world tell you anything you go find out. And and it seems so just violently contemporary, and it's quite the opposite. Um, it's a deeply ancient word. So I, I felt like she wouldn't have used that word. So I settled on quim. Um, <laughs> and um, somebody wrote... I liked it right from the start and every time thereafter. <laughs> Somebody, a friend of mine, read the book in manuscript and sent me a text that said, you had me at Quim. <laughs> and um, there's been a lot of love for Quim. I like it because it's sort of proper. It sort of sounds prim. Um, it almost has the word quill, sort of writerly. Um, it's ladylike. I feel like it's a word that the maids would have used when teaching her hygiene. You know, I felt like that was the one that just felt like a word she would have known um, and and so, yes, it, it shows up all through the book. <laughs> I hate to ask you this question, but earlier on you bragged that anyone would answer any question you asked nicely. Have you ever been in the throes of passion and had that word come into your head? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It's actually worse than that. I remember being in the throes of passion and running through the list of words. <laughs> and being like... Change purse, <laughs> honey, <laughs> oh, what's it going to be? Fanny, you know, Fanny, you know, you've been to the UK. Um, <laughs> so that that became it. I was like, I got to settle on this so I can have my own intimate life back. <laughs> I want to ask you one um Question: I, I maybe I don't know a hundred percent how to ask it, but what is it like to be a symbol of a certain kind of white lady? Mm. I'm taking your that noise that you just made as sort of a, a, at least some agreement with that. No, I know, I know assertion. exactly what you mean. Trust me, I know how I'm seen. <laughs> um, and it's since that since that happened, how has it affected your life? Um, I know this sounds so impossible to imagine now after what had happened and how it's seen now or however people see it. I think it's helpful that I know the backstory. Um, a lot of other people don't. 
but I don't think it's everybody's job to know my backstory. <laughs> you know, I always feel like it's not your responsibility. It's not the world's responsibility, Liz, to know everything about you. It's your responsibility to know everything about you, right? It's not their job. Um, so the handy shorthand version of me is, you know, like entitled, I don't mean like entitled white lady, uh, self-indulgently travels around the world and, and gets whatever she wants. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, it's, I know that that's not the story of my life. And I know that, and I know, especially from having been on Facebook now, I know who my readers are and my readers aren't those women, you know, or I don't even know who that woman is. You know, I, I did an event the other night and this guy introduced me and said, she had this great success. And, um, and with that probably comes some baggage. Now for Elizabeth Gilbert, that's probably Louis Vuitton baggage. And I was like, dude, like if you knew like the carry on that I have, you know, like this, like that's, it's just so not who I like. I'm like, ah, um, but, but, uh, but what can I want me to try to argue with this guy about try to talk him into seeing me in some different way? Like what a tragic use of my energy that would be. Well, one of the things is people can't I mean, there's no way to tell someone about the totality of you the way that you know the totality of you. They can only interact with this thing that they have made. Yeah. Um, and, and that's sort of none of my business. You know, I mean, it, it, I won't say that it doesn't like prick me at times or irritate me but I always think you may think of me whatever you like but when you diminish me that way what you're really doing is dismissing millions of women who had a very sincere emotional experience with this story and then took that experience into their own lives to ask themselves really important questions about their own existence and I've met those women and and I have such regard for them. And I think their lives matter. And I think their emotional lives matter. I think their choices matter. I think their intellects matter. And I was just in Atlanta last week because I'm on book tour. And this African-American woman in the front row, like on the edge of her seat during my entire reading, comes up to me after the event and says, I've been waiting to meet you for three years because three years ago I read Eat, Pray, Love. I finished it. I turned the last page on it. I shut the book. I stood up from my couch. And I walked out of the house I had spent the last 10 years sharing with a man who beat me every day. And I never came back, even for my stuff. And I went to my mom's house, and I lost 60 pounds. And I moved to another state, and I got a job, and I just came back from my first trip to Europe. And who could look at that and say, like, self-indulgent, you know? <laughs> like, that is the most beautiful story. Like, And I'm still capable of being moved to tears by that after seven years of people saying, you probably hear this all the time, but your book really changed my life. I'm almost monthly moved to tears by those stories because I think women especially have such a difficult time thinking that their lives have worth and that they have permission to ask the really serious questions. Do I have a right to enjoyment? Do I have a right to my feelings? Do I have a right to spirituality? Do I have a right to leave this toxic relationship? Do I have a right to care for anybody who's not another person? Do I have a right to ask myself where my creativity went? Um, and if my book did nothing more than to serve as a giant permission slip from the principal's office to a whole bunch of women who didn't dare to ask themselves that question before, then that is a point of, of just incredibly humbling joy to me, to be able to have had that kind of emotional and resonant connection with women of all ages from all over the world has been 
the single greatest privilege of my life, and I take it really seriously, and I make sure that I try to honor that and that I try to show up for them and that whatever work I do for the rest of my life is for them and not for anybody else. Well, Liz, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Thank you. It was wonderful to be here. Elizabeth Gilbert's great new novel is called The Signature of All Things. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. At Bullseye, we're all about finding the pieces of pop culture that are most worth your time. And sometimes that means going back to find some all-time favorites. We're checking in with our culture critics from the film site The Dissolve on hand to talk about some of their favorite dark comedies. We've got staff writer Nathan Rabin and editorial director Keith Phipps here. Nathan, Keith, how are you guys doing? Good. Doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Nathan, let's start with your pick. A favorite of mine, too, I have to say. Albert Brooks' 1979 film, Real Life. Um, So there was this documentary series on PBS called An American Family, which was credited and has been credited by many people as the the first reality television program. And in some ways, this movie is a parody of that. Maybe you could describe real life. Sure. Um, the film is basically an extension of the short films that Albert Brooks uh, had done for the first season of Saturday Night Live, where he kind of played Albert Brooks himself in you know, sort of ironic uh, quotation marks as kind of this very um, narcissistic, oblivious utterly egomaniacal show business phony. So in 1979, when he was looking to make his directorial debut, he kind of latched on to an American family, as you said, um, and to cast himself as, again, the Albert Brooks character. Um, this guy who sets out to win not just the Academy Award, but the Nobel Prize, for making a film that isn't just good and entertaining and popular, but one that is incredibly important socially. So the idea is to chronicle a year in the life of a typical American family. The father of the, of the family is played by Charles Grodin, who is absolutely fantastic. Honey, do you think it's safe for you to be eating with your heating pad in your lap? I have terrible cramps. I am bleeding profusely, and I want to vomit on the table. (laughs) What are you doing? No, I I just want to let them know that this is not the way we usually talk, especially at the dinner table. Okay, okay. Why why don't we... uh... Why don't we just uh, pretend that we just sat down and, and we can start over, okay? Wait, peace on, kids? Kids? I <laughs> But this very interesting, very uh, weird, very prescient um, uh, satire that really seems to anticipate the entire genre of reality television. Uh, one of the sort of miraculous things about it that is the quintessential uh, and ultimate parody of reality television created before the genre even existed. It's also really funny. Yes, it is unbelievably hilarious. It's one of the most inspired comedies ever made. Keith, let's talk about your recommendation to be or not to be from 1942, the Ernst Lubitsch classic. Um, tell me a little bit about it first. So it was released in 1942, and it was somewhat controversially received at the time because it's 1942, and World War II is in, in full swing. And, and it's a film that was accused of making light of the Nazis uh, being a, a comedy 
featuring Nazi characters and, and set uh, in Poland uh, during during the invasion. What's wonderful about it is is it, it it humanizes the Nazis in a way that just makes them feel that seem that much worse. Instead of making this sort of odd, this monolithic threat, it kind of brought them down to earth in a way that was more humiliating than anything else that, that could have been done. Der Führer. Heil Hitler. Heil Hitler. Heil myself. And it sort of works really effectively both as a sharp, dark human comedy and also a war thriller in a way. Keith Phipps uh, recommends To Be or Not To Be from 1942, directed by Ernst Lubitsch. Nathan Rabin recommends uh, Albert Brooks' 1979 film Real Life. You can find both of them writing online regularly at The Dissolve. Nathan, Keith, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's new segment time. I talk to creative people all the time on the show, men and women who are making great stuff. One of the most interesting things about talking to them is finding out what inspires them. Some of that stuff is so good, so perfect, that sometimes they wish they'd made it themselves. Listen, we're pretty literal-minded here at Bullseye, so we're calling this new segment, I Wish I'd Made That. Fred Armisen's the first person we're checking in with. I am an entrepreneur. Is it pronounced entrepreneur? Uh, I'm all business. He's not actually an entrepreneur. You know him from his many years on Saturday Night Live and his show Portlandia on IFC. We caught Armisen at Tenacious D's Festival Supreme on the Santa Monica Pier. It was just a couple weeks ago. He was there performing as Ian Rubbish. That's his British punk alter ego. Armisen actually has a pretty rich musical background. When he was living in Chicago in the early 90s, he played in a very well-respected post-punk band. They were called Trenchmouth. In fact, he got into comedy sort of accidentally. He was with his band at South by Southwest and kind of bored. So he videotaped himself interviewing people in character. Why are you here in the house? Um, I came to South by Southwest with MTV doing some interviews. The tape got passed around, and before long, he was writing comedian on his taxes, where he used to write drummer. Anyway, the thing he wishes he made is actually an album. There's an album by Kraftwerk called Computer World. This is 1981. This was kind of before things were really digital. I was already in a punk clash and the Sex Pistols, and it was that and the Beatles. But this really jumped out. Really, it's, it almost sounds like clicks. The rhythm tracks almost sound like a scratch on a CD or something. It's those little clicks. I'm the operator of my pocket calculator. Beep, beep. I am adding and subtracting. These songs are so simple. It made me realize that to be revolutionary and to to be a punk, the key is you really gotta turn everything upside down. 
It's like when you see improv comedy these days. The best comedy groups are the ones where you're like, I did not see that coming. And this band created this album that I've always, I, I just, it's one thing that I wish I had been a part of to make something like that. Because I think you can, you can die on, on that. You can make that and, and die and go, that's the thing I made. Fred Armisen wishes he could have made Computer World. It's a 1981 album by Kraftwerk. Armisen's show Portlandia returns to IFC early next year. I'll sit down with Gillian Jacobs after a break. She plays Britta on the NBC sitcom Community. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Justin, what are you doing? Uh, strapping a uh, chicken to my arm. Heard there's some uh, plague out west, so I just wanted to you know, kind of get out ahead of it. Justin, if you'd ever listen to our medical history podcast, Sawbones, where we talk about everything from trepanation to bloodletting, you would know that that is a ridiculous idea and it will never work. Sawbones? I, I haven't caught it. Sawbones? Yes, it's every Friday on the Maximum Fun Network, and we record it together. Doctor or something? Yes! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Gillian Jacobs went to Juilliard to learn classical acting, Shakespeare and Chekhov and stuff like that. When she started to work, it was as lost young women in very serious roles, drug addicts, strippers, that sort of thing. Then she was cast in the sitcom Community, and everything changed. In part because Community isn't just a sitcom, it's a cultural force. It's not that Community has the most fans or viewers of any television program on TV. It's that Community fans love their show more than any sitcom before or since. The show's about an unlikely study group at a fictional community college. It's a classic sitcom setup. And Jacobs, as Britta, beautiful and earnest, seems like a perfect romantic lead. But Community's not exactly that kind of show. Britta's over-earnest, a little oblivious, and always has to be right. Take this scene. It's family day at college, and she's been lecturing her friend Troy, telling him he should cherish his grandmother. Right now, he is hiding from her. She's still acting holier than thou when they run into the grandmother in the hallway. Is this Nana Barnes? Troy didn't mention you were such a knockout. What's that supposed to mean? Oh, come on. I'm sure you've broken a few hearts in your time. Oh, tell me. How many men do you think I've laid with? Who are you? I am Britta, and I have offended you, and I am sorry. Is there anything I can get you? Yes. You can get me a switch. A what now? She's not family, Nana. You can't make her get you a switch. She can make me get it. I just have to know what it is. A switch is a stick she can use to whoop you with? Cherish, Britta. Cherish. Community just went into syndication. You can catch it a few times a day in most places. And the show is set to return to NBC later this season. Uh, Gillian Jacobs, it's really great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. So when you went to uh, Juilliard, did you think that you were going to spend the rest of your days, um, you know, playing repertory roles at uh, 
the Oregon Shakespeare Festival or something like that? Yeah, the Guthrie Theater was my goal in life. Yeah, I thought that, I thought I was going to have a career in classical theater. And then, in part, I uh, had a horrible time at Juilliard, and that sort of broke my love of theater. And then also I, I realized I didn't want to be broke the rest of my life. And um, I, I realized later that they would only give us tickets to really bad plays that weren't doing well in New York. But it gave me this really <laughs> false impression that theater in New York was terrible because everything I saw for a couple of years were the worst of New York theater. So and it was just because they couldn't sell tickets to those I that you later, got free tickets. I later realized that, that they were trying to fill the house for these plays that weren't selling well. But I just thought theater in New York was terrible. So then my goals kind of shifted. So wait, so what did you think Juilliard was going to be like when you were 18 years old and you or 17 years old and auditioned? Well, I'd had such positive experiences as a kid in acting classes and the plays that I'd done that I thought it was just going to be a continuation of that where everyone thought I was great and <laughs> and um, I got good parts and I had a lot of friends because that's where all my friends were growing up were my acting classes and plays. And then it was, you know, your classical break you down to build you back up uh, theater I don't School. know what that is. I know what that is for football, but I don't know <laughs> what it is for classical theater. There is a kind of, I guess, acting school philosophy that you have to sort of reduce the student to a, a pile of mush and then reteach them everything they thought they knew about acting and build them up again in your image. So by the time they leave, they're supposed to be a reassembled actor, but now with a skill set that they didn't have when they came in. I felt like they kind of forgot to build me back up and kind of left me a pile of mush. <laughs> give me give me an example of what you mean. Well, there used to be a probation system at Juilliard, which thankfully they've gotten rid of, where at the end of your first semester or sophomore year, they would put a bunch of yellow envelopes on this pushpin board. And if your name was on one of them, you knew you were on probation, which meant that you were eligible to be kicked out of the school. So I was one of the people that was on probation, and the first thing that happens is you go to the— What was it like to go up to a— It's terrible. It's terrible. You know, everybody kind of knows what that means, and your other classmates have probably seen that you're one of the flagged people, and— um you just sort of feel already like in that you're like a lower class citizen at the school. And then you sit in a circle with all your teachers and they go around one by one and tell you how you're failing in their class. And I remember my movement teacher told me that I, I did well for someone with no natural ability. <laughs> so it's that kind of positive. But, you know, Looking back now, I'm kind of glad that happened because this business is so brutal and unforgiving that having to face that earlier on maybe made auditioning less traumatic than it was for other people in my class. But, yeah, it was <laughs> it certainly killed my love of theater for a while. In the years in between when you left school and, you know, when Community started five, five or six years ago— mm -hmm. You played, as I mentioned in the introduction, a bunch of really dark, yes. intense roles um, in both film and theater. Yeah, yep. Was was that on purpose? Was that what you were? Was that you, what you were going out for? Was that what someone was sending you out for? I was going out for everything that every other you know actress my age was going out for. But I think that there was some edge to me that I don't I don't know what it was. Um, 
but I never got an ingenue part. I remember I went in for one audition. I can't remember what the movie was, but it was like a high school fighting movie. And I was going in to play the hot girl love interest. And uh, I was there with like, you know, a lot of other young actresses and went in, did the scene. And the director says, you know who you remind me of? Christopher Walken. <laughs> and that's when I knew I was not going to get that part. And I think um, that was kind of the response to me auditioning for those types of roles was like, something's off here. This is not a natural fit. I never got any commercials either. I think I ate the food too angrily, perhaps, in the audition. <laughs> it's Bullseye. My guest is the actress Gillian Jacobs. She plays Britta on the NBC sitcom Community. What did you know about Community when you auditioned to be on? I knew that Joel McHale was cast in it, and that was all I knew. Um, at what point did you get the sense that, in fact, it would be alternative comedy guy... Changing does, yeah, yeah, does thing that does thing that's <laughs> never been done. Um, probably the first hint was our Halloween episode, our first season, just because the scope and scale of it was so big for a sitcom and also like I'm standing there dressed as a squirrel you know with Chevy dressed as Beastmaster and you know with a, a squirrel on his I mean, with an owl on his arm and then I think I fully understood right about the the paintball episode our first season which was the end of our first season and that was the thing that I think really got us a lot of attention and uh, made people realize that the show was not going to be like anything else. Um, yeah, we did a pretty much a straightforward action movie uh, in 30 minutes. Can I get dressed before you assassinate me? So, all that happened, it meant nothing to you? I didn't say that. What did it mean to you? I asked you first. Very mature. Said the woman wearing the Hello Kitty underwear. Said the woman holding the gun. You sure that's a gun? Maybe it's a metaphor for your fake jaded persona. Uh-oh. No paintball haunts? What, do you think I'm stupid? When did you take my clip? When you started seducing me. I wasn't, though. Assuming that makes you way grosser. Not when I'm right. It's funny. Dan Harmon as, um, is the creator of Community, and he had, along with Rob Schraub, done this thing called Channel 101, which was essentially a short video competitive short video festival in New York and later Los Angeles where um, comics and producers and stuff and directors would get together to make quote-unquote television series that were very short format. Um, and each week there would be a vote to see which television series would come back the next month and which television series would be canceled. And um, because of the pressures of that, it often led to these really sophisticated genre parodies because genre parody is a thing that you can generate in that context. And he made a TV show called Acceptable TV for VH1 some years ago um, that was that, that was based around that stuff. And I think in a lot of ways, community became a an extension of that, which is to say that he took this group of friends, which is the thing that every sitcom is built on, and just started putting them into these worlds. Yeah, Every world you can think of almost at this point. What I wonder is, what is it like for you 
as an actress to have these character relationships and, you know, su- supposedly a sitcom is about the situation. Yeah. But when the situation is, oh, uh, this week there's parallel universes. <laughs> well, you know, the the characters on the show always dive headfirst into whatever situation it is. It, it takes zero convincing to get them fully on board to whatever adventure they're in every week. And it's kind of like that for us as a casting crew where it's always overwhelming. It's always insane. And we always feel just excited to be doing it. Um, we shot another one a couple of weeks ago that is for season five. That's another huge episode. And you have a point at which you look around at these crazy costumes that you're in in a weird set that they've somehow thrown together in three days and we look at each other and say, this is our job, you know, and I and I think that kind of is reflected in the show itself and how the characters deal with the circumstance and, and um, it's kind of a, you know, I, I'm never going to have a job like it ever again. So... No matter how difficult it gets, being on and off the schedule, losing Dan, getting Dan back, try and stay grateful for that because I'm never going to have a job like this ever again. I want to play another clip from Community, and my guest is Gillian Jacobs, who's one of the stars of the show. Um, So in this clip, the episode is set in what I will describe as a Glee-like world. (laughs) And uh, the Glee Club has brainwashed the study group that's at the center of, of the show community. And they uh, the study group has agreed to be part of the Christmas pageant. So um, one of the characters, Abed, got a big solo. Uh, Britta, your character, Gillian, uh, is playing a, a tree. A mute tree. A mute tree. <laughs> and um, Abed throws you into uh, the lead role at the very last second. So let's take a listen. Britta! Is this about regionals? I just talked to Corey, and he needs you to be the Mouse King instead of me. Me? But I'm supposed to be a mute tree. It's an emergency. This will help us get to regionals. I knew it! Wait, where are the lyrics? They're in your heart, Britta. Right. Christmas time! Oh, Britta's in this? Stage and never sing again. You are the worst. Hey, you do not get to call Britta the worst. Yeah. Mr. Ramson, I think it's fine. Now, Greendale is an all inclusive school. Why don't we let Britta sing her awkward song? Yeah. <laughs> your face is literally in your hands. I don't think you're doing it for my benefit. <laughs> That's painful to listen to. <laughs> yep. Yep, they really tapped into my tone deafness, and if you watch the uh, the episode, my inability to dance. <laughs> uh-huh. Your character is, you know, blonde and uh, beautiful <laughs> and open-hearted and earnest. Yeah. But all of the character, your character is also consistently fails at almost everything and is kind of unpleasant. And in fact, all of the characters on the show frequently have genuine negative <laughs> personal characteristics. Yeah. 
Like not phony Maroney ones, no. not like oh, we really learned a lesson, but yeah. like they're actively abrasive sometimes. Yes. And yeah, I think that the thing that I like about her is that she does not let other people's negative op- opinion of her deter her in any way. You know, she does get her feelings hurt occasionally by them. Um, and she is now at this point in the show aware of how they see her. But she still will loudly proclaim her opinions until they make her stop. And I like that about her. Do you feel like that's a little bit like you in your three and four of acting school? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think it's more like me in junior high and elementary school. I remember my mom made me read that book, Reviving Ophelia. I don't know if you're a man, so you probably were not forced to read that book. <laughs> I was busy reading The Women Who Run With the Wolves. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But it was all it's this book about how girls, little girls start out as these very strong, opinionated, outspoken, creative creatures and then basically through puberty and society become quiet and shy and muted. And um and it's sort of like Britta never went through that phase and and I was very much that idealistic, outspoken, impassioned kid who was told to shut up by the rest of my peers. So maybe Britta has enabled me to to get back in touch with that that outwardly goofy part of myself that maybe was more reserved for like close friends and family. I don't know if my bits are any good, but now I'm just throwing <laughs> them out there a little bit more. <laughs> Um, it, it seems like over over these years that Community has run, you know, it's now gotten to syndication, mm-hmm. which is the sort of the gold standard for a network sitcom. I mean, that's when you know that you have been a success. But it has been so consistently tortuous mm-hmm. in every possible – at every point. I mean, it doesn't seem like there was any easy part of the process. No. No. There's not been an – I don't think there's been an easy day on community. Um, Has there been a time when you felt like you felt confident that you weren't canceled, for example? Oh, you know what? It's weird because actually our first season was the easiest. We got our back nine fairly quickly, and which is, you know, when you get a full season as a freshman show, that's a mark that you're doing well. Yeah, usually they order 13 episodes to go with the pilot, and then the back nine is the makes it 22, which yes. is a full season of a sitcom. So we got that without much drama, and then we actually got picked up for our second season before we had stopped shooting the first season, which has never happened again. So it kind of gave us this bad precedent of thinking that it was going to go on like that. Um, but from there on out, no, it's there. We have not had an easy day. You know, I think it's interesting because once again, paralleling the show, the characters are complete underdogs at a terrible community college that is always threatened with extinction and being turned into like a parking lot for a rival community college. And we as a show are constantly fighting for our lives. We now have billboards for the first time and they're for syndication. Like, I don't know if I can fully communicate to people who don't work in TV how bizarre and unlikely that is that you would make it to syndication without ever having any promotion of the show. I mean, it's just truly a testament to our fans because we've we've never had, you know, that that easy road that you see these other shows that sort of like sail straight from success to success into syndication and just live on your TV five nights a week. It's like we've clawed our way there every step of the way. So um, Dan Harmon, the creator of the show, who's a brilliantly funny guy, has been a guest on this show, um, is 
notably ambitious mm-hmm. and admittedly maybe not a world class manager. <laughs> yeah. Um and um uh, had a public feud with the highest profile star of the show who's now <laughs> no longer on the show Chevy Chase. Mm-hmm. Um the show has been uh you know essentially teetering on the bridge of cancellation since since the uh production of season 2 began basically. Correct. <laughs> Um, what was the, uh, Dan Harmon, I forgot to mention, was fired from the show. Yes. Um, for all of the last season, then rehired for this season. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what was the most difficult point for you? Personally, uh, like when did you feel the most kind of shaky? Well, I think when we got pulled off of the schedule in our third season, um, that was a really difficult moment because, it sort of felt like, okay, we're going to trudge through this. It's never going to be easy for us. But we're a TV show. We're we're continuing to be a TV show like other TV shows. Um, and to be pulled off the schedule without knowing when we were going to be back, that was really hard. Um, and then losing Dan um, was very difficult as well. Those were, those were two really hard moments. Um, what was it like to be trying to make a TV show at the point where it was – Stuff was so crazy that um, uh, Dan or Chevy Chase <laughs> might get fired from the show yeah. because of what was going on between the two of them, and hmm. the well, and like it was just and and from what I gather, like uh, Dan was just trying to make the most ambitious yeah. sitcom ever, with the maybe possible exception of Arrested Development, yeah. but maybe not. Well. Dan, neither Dan or Chevy left the show because of what went on between the two of them, which I think has somehow come to be the public sort of understanding of what went down. I mean, there were a lot of factors that went, you know, and I'm probably not even privy to everything that went down. But it wasn't about the two of them fighting with each other. I think that they both, you know— they're they're very outspoken men, and so they yes, and they, they're both legitimate comedy geniuses yes, as well. Totally. I mean, genuine, certified. Yes. They have a right to be outspoken. Yeah. So that that wasn't really what was going on, but you know, the part where Dan was trying to make the most ambitious TV show of all time, that I am down for one hundred percent. I will work eighteen hour days and you know be so tired that I develop a facial twitch, and I, I will I will do that until I fall down from exhaustion because. I respect his ambition and artistic vision and talent so much that I will die on the field making the show for him. So that has never bothered me. You know, I think other people on other shows may not want to do the kind of hours that we do on our show. But that that's always been the part that I like the most about the show. Um, I like getting behind something that I believe in and I'll, I'll fight for it as long as you let me fight for it. Um, I think that you know, it, it's kind of become, I think, to us a little bit mythical, the show at this point, because so many things have happened to it, and yet we have yet to be canceled, that it feels like, bring it on. <laughs> at this point, it feels like, bring it on. Like, we have a banner that hangs outside of our stage that says, congratulations on your zero Emmy nominations. <laughs> and that's been hanging out there for a couple of years now. And, you know, so everyone that comes to visit the show or tour groups that drive by on the lot all see this. And I think we kind of wear it as a badge of pride at this point that we know we're doing good work. We kind of feel like the wire of comedy that, like, maybe once we're no longer, 
you know, on NBC, people are going to either discover us. We're going to get the that that acclaim that we feel like we do deserve at this point. Like, I feel like we have a body of work that is is worthy of some award. I'm not going to say which award or for what, but cable ace. Yeah, please. I would be so honored to get a cable ace award. Uh, <laughs> Blockbuster Entertainment. Oh my god. People's Choice Award. As a viewer of the comeback, I kept waiting for our People's Choice nomination, which is yet to happen. But um you know, at this point, I I'm just looking forward to whoever writes the oral history of community because it will be a bestseller much like the SNL and ESPN book. We're going to we're going to be on the New York Times bestseller list because of everything that has happened to the show in the course of are five now seasons. Tell me about one thing that happened in the show that um, is will end up in that book. Oh God! Oh God! God! That I can say on the radio. Um, we can bleep out swear words. <laughs> we can't get you unsued, but we can bleep. We get me unsued. Well, I just remember when we were shooting the paintball, uh, our second season two-part paintball. Um, the first half, which was like a Western, and the second half was Star Wars. Um, and they hadn't written the second episode. Um, so we were doing the first part not knowing what the second part was going to be. We were setting up storylines that were then rewritten and having to go back and reshoot as we're shooting. You know, there wasn't a script. So we started out Monday with, I think, one scene. Um, I didn't know what the plot of the episode was. And I had a line where something about – said something about Jeff to Troy or Troy to Jeff and someone was supposed to give me a look. And they said, oh, there's going to be a love triangle in this episode where Jeff and Troy are fighting over you. I was like, OK. That got cut. We had to reshoot those whole episodes. We were shooting for so long that um, Yvette, who plays Shirley, one night slept for three hours in her trailer at work and then got up and kept shooting. She didn't even get to go home. Um, we, um, where I remember one time during those two weeks, I had a call time of midnight. I drove to work at midnight, (laughs) went through hair and makeup, and then was told to go home. (laughs) Um, and I'm trying to think of other things that happened in the shooting of that. Like we, at one point, Shirley and Britta are on a golf cart and we're supposed to be like chasing down our enemies, firing paintballs. And the director wanted to like uh, Steven Soderbergh style operate the camera and um, jumped on the the golf cart and broke it. So then the, the grips <laughs> were having to physically push the golf cart. So it's supposed to be a big action sequence and the golf cart is going one mile per hour. And they're trying to figure out how to like fake the shooting so it looks like we're going really fast. Um, God, I don't know. Like the fact that that was probably the last time that we've been allowed to shoot outside, that we're, <laughs> we're a network television show that is not allowed to go on location or shoot outside. Since season three, we have shot everything indoors on our sound stages every set we've had they have built on our sound stages and maybe once or twice there has been natural daylight you're on our you're TV describing show. like an apoc like a sitcom apocalypse now situation well we had a heart of darkness um episode where the dean <laughs> makes a commercial for the show and it basically is it's based on the shooting of apocalypse you know the documentary about the shooting of apocalypse now that 
it was one of probably our most meta episodes because it was we were making an episode about how we make the show about, you know, it was circling in on itself completely. <laughs> I mean, how many other shows can say they start Monday morning not knowing what the script is or what the episode is about? And and yet uh, we all have such faith in Dan that as confusing as it may be, I always feel like it's going to work out. Um so we've not we've not had mutiny. <laughs> That's the to me the most amazing part about the entire community saga and drama <laughs> isn't it not getting canceled and making it into syndication. Um, you know, especially after it got a couple of years in, and the people started to have a lot of a lot of skin in the game, and there's a lot of potential money in syndication. Yeah. Like, well, here's hoping, you know. Yeah, it's the fact that Dan Harmon got fired and then rehired. Mm-hmm. What was it like on the first day when he came back and was like, hey, guys, remember when I got fired? (laughs) Not fired anymore. Well, you know, that is in large part, I think, to Joel McHale, Dan's return. Um, And, you know, Joel's just absolute belief in Dan and that Dan is the heart and soul of the show. Um, And uh, I don't know if I can say this, but the first episode of season five is called Repiloting. Um, so I definitely feel like, you know, Dan is always going to find a way to work in what's happening in real life into the show. And I wish I'd been there for the first table read, but I was unfortunately out of town shooting. So I didn't get to be there for that exact moment. But it, it, it somehow is community. Of course he got fired and rehired, you know, of course, of course that's what happened. Um, and I'm so grateful that it did. I, it's I don't know. It's so it's such an interesting thing to be on a show where other people in the industry kind of are like, oh, so you guys aren't coming back, huh? It's probably over. So are you are you doing pilots this year? You know, are you going out for things like people just talk to you in this pitying, (laughs) condescending assumptive they just always have assumed that we have already been canceled it's so strange to be on a show where i feel like i have to tell fans of the show that we have not been canceled like <laughs> the people who like the show don't even know that we're not canceled um and and i just do have that little like underdog like f you you know spark in me now that maybe juilliard was trying to give me circling all the way back of like you don't know you really don't know. We we may run longer than any sitcom in TV history at this point. Like, who knows what we could do? We could, you know, become an Internet show. Like, I, it's funny over the course of the show being on the air, like the rise of Netflix and everything. It seems viable at this point. People are making money off of it. Maybe we will exist in cyberspace only and and become the most profitable show of all time. I don't know. Holograms? Holograms, definitely. If Tupac can be a hologram, we can be a hologram. Uh, You've asserted that um, you will never have another role like your role on Community and never be part of a show that's like Community. Yeah. I think that's a fair thing to say. I think it's also fair to say that you will never again star in a film (laughs) about a butt demon. (laughs) You don't know that, Jesse. I guess there could be a sequel to your new movie, Bad Milo. But um, when you get 
does someone, does your agent get a script about a butt demon and call you and say, I got a great butt demon project for you? I think they know me well enough at this point to know that I like weird, strange things. So I am not going to be turned off by the logline of it's a movie about a butt demon. Yeah, I got sent a script. It was a script. There was like a normal, normal Hollywood agent process of meetings set up. And, you know, I I think that um, I think that. I'm happy that I'm happy that someone had a strange enough idea and believed in it enough to see it through to an actual film where I was being punched by a butt demon. I mean, <laughs> saw it all the way through because I've had plenty of great weird ideas that I didn't do anything about. And Jacob Vaughn did something about his weird idea. And here we are now talking about Bad Milo. Well, Gillian, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Gillian Jacobs plays Britta on the NBC sitcom Community. The show's fifth season begins in January. Gillian also co-stars in the new movie Bad Milo. It's on VOD now. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. I can't quite say that I'm proud of the time that I spend playing Grand Theft Auto V. I just had a new baby. It's our second. My dogs probably need a walk right this very moment. Also, it's possible that I shouldn't play Grand Theft Auto V because it's kind of gross. But honestly, it's hard to stay away because Grand Theft Auto is fun. The thing about games is that they can be designed just so. They can scratch a certain animal itch in our brains. They can complete a little feedback loop between a couple of neurons, and it is just so perfect. That's how I feel about stealing a Lamborghini, mowing down a few pedestrians, and doing some sweet jumps while I run from the fuzz. Look, is Grand Theft Auto perfect? No, of course not. It's like 75% problematic. There's the whole category that we'll call moral abhorrence. It's sort of racist, pretty misogynist, basically hateful towards almost everyone on Earth. Then there's the category that we'll call artistic issues. It's a pastiche of every gangster thing ever. Even when the dialogue is clever, which it is, you know... Once in a while, it gets sunk by this weird, awkward direction. Seriously, listen to this. Who is that? Hello, Missy. Wow, Franklin. You never told me that you had a sister. I'm Denise, Franklin's housemate. And aunt. And then just imagine those mismatched line readings coming from dead-eyed polygon men. And you'll get the picture of what I'm talking about. So... I will stipulate. Problematic. But is Grand Theft Auto fun? Oh, God, yes. It is basically as fun as fun can be because they manage to nail the realism. Which isn't to say that it is perfectly realistic. It is not the most realistic video game you can play. In fact, the opposite. What's perfect about it is that it is perfectly unreal. The designers of Grand Theft Auto... Create an environment with just the right amount of ridiculous. 
Everything in the game feels like it matters, but not so much that you feel bad after you murder 24 people in cold blood. The game's hard, but not too hard. You don't get frustrated, but you don't get bored. These are the toughest parts of designing a game. And at these things, Grand Theft Auto is perfect. Look, I'm not a murderer, or a misogynist, or a bad guy, you know, generally. I'm married to my high school sweetheart. I don't smoke or drink. I wear a necktie sometimes when I don't have to. But that doesn't mean that once in a while when my kid's gone to bed and my wife's curled up with a lap blanket reading a juicy novel, I don't enjoy taking out an entire biker gang with a grenade launcher. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, senior producer Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast with whatever software you use to download podcasts. You can do that for free. And hey, if you go to MaximumFun.org, you'll find our other shows, like the comedy podcast I host, Jordan Jesse Go. If you have thoughts about Bullseye, you can always email me, jesse, at MaximumFun.org. And you can also post to our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. And hey, if you like Bullseye, don't just listen next week. Tell somebody else to listen with you. Or by themselves. I don't care, as long as we have more new listeners. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-up. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.